0: you found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. I'm speaking to you from West Orange, New Jersey in the United States. And today's extraordinary guest is coming to us from Australia. And it is 730 a.m. where he is. So we have to give... David, a lot of credit for getting up to do this interview with me today. Dr. David Rowland is a gifted writer, presenter, and psychologist. His first two books that are published internationally are his memoir titled How I Rescued My Brain and The Confident Performer. The award-winning How I Rescued My Brain A Psychologist's Remarkable Recovery from Stroke and Trauma, describes how David set about implementing his own rehabilitation plan using neuroplasticity, psychology, and social connection. David's latest book, titled The Power of Suffering, Growing Through Life Crises, poses the following profound question to which many in our grief and rebirth audience will surely relate when our world is turned upside down, what does it do to us? How do we survive it? And how do we grow as a result? The book details David's personal investigation into the nature of human suffering by drawing together the inspiring real life stories of 11 incredible people who survived devastating crises and grew in in transformative ways. David not only narrates these stories, but he also examines them through the lens of post-traumatic growth. Having read The Power of Suffering, I'm eager to discuss with David how navigating suffering provides a route to discovering new growth from the lessons it brings. This is surely going to be a compassion-filled, impactful interview. But first, I need to take a quick minute to show some love to our sponsors. Stay tuned. David, I want to warmly welcome you to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Let's begin our interview with this question. Please tell us about your devastating life crisis and how it turned what you call your internal compass away from your own needs to love.
1: Well, hello, Irene, and thanks for having me on this delightful show.
0: This is a pleasure.
1: <laughs> I, I think we're two souls in unison here. I do, too. Uh, I, I, I uh, I suppose I don't quite know where to start with that question except the obvious one which is I was a person who had everything you know I was a very successful professional running my own private practice I had a lovely wife and three young daughters uh, we were living in our dream home in a very beautiful part of Australia on the east coast so there wasn't anything that I didn't didn't want or need really. And then as so often happens, uh, something comes from out of the blue, completely unforeseen and turns your world upside down. And the first series of events, the first of a series of events was me starting to wake up in the mornings and not actually wanting to go to work. And this is the strangest thing because since I was 16, I wanted to be a psychologist and to understand human behavior and help people and a long story short i decided to go and see a a more senior clinical psychologist in my area who i knew specialized in trauma and i'd worked a lot with trauma and i had this idea that maybe the trauma stories that i'd heard and also some of the things i'd seen and i'd worked a lot with children who'd been removed from their families Had, had come to disturb me because I was having nightmares about my own children and my own family imagining us in terrible situations. And he said, I think, David, you've got post traumatic stress disorder and you're also depressed. So he suggested I take some time off my practice. I was self employed. So I thought, well, I'll take six months off and uh, get back to it after then. While well, I was still going with psychotherapy with Wayne and, and, uh, a year and a half later, I had a stroke out of the blue. I hadn't been able to return to work, but I, I was starting to get better. But this also coincided with the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. So I have a lot of sympathy for people going through um, you know, financial upheavals at the moment. I know what it feels like. And we had lost our life savings by then because I hadn't been working and this stroke that came out of the blue was probably due to extreme stress brought on by the financial crisis. I had no medical reasons to have a stroke. I was what they classify as a young stroke, mm. and that left me with, you know, some serious uh, brain injury. But the the most difficult aspect of that was it affected my auditory processing, so my ability to have conversations. I it was. I describe it as being like speaking English as a second language, You know, where you hear somebody speak and you think, okay, what do those words mean? I've got to translate that into my language and then I've got to think of an answer and then I've got to repeat it back. And also I had incredible amnesia. So this conversation that we're having right now would have been impossible for me. I would have already forgotten the question that you'd asked me. And whether I told you what I'm telling you already, you know. So I had this incredible amnesia, um, but I had to, I had to, and I also had incredible mental fatigue, which is very common with brain injury. So I would have a conversation like this, and then I would have to go <laughs> go to bed for an hour or two. Uh, so I had to embark on my own rehabilitation because I was what they call a walk and talk stroke. I walked out of hospital. I was misdiagnosed in the beginning. They said, oh, you've got some type of psychologically induced amnesia. But fortunately, a psychiatrist in the hospital th- thought I should t- you should do some more neurological tests. So three weeks after the morning I woke up after having a stroke, I was actually properly diagnosed. But there was nothing nothing to be done according to my physician. So I went home and I spent some time, you know, just recovering, but then starting to think, what can I do? And that's when I started reading, I started talking to some people that I knew in the brain injury sphere and gradually put together my own rehabilitation program. I would say there was a period of about five or six years from that time I started waking up and not wanting to go to work. The stroke, the financial crisis, where we were we were on our knees financially, and then uh, you know I got I got better enough that I could start to think about you know my family and think beyond myself, and then my wife wanted a divorce, Uh, you know the marriage had been a little bit difficult, you know it had been difficult during this year, but you know she wanted out and. And and so that meant the separation of the family and that caused incredible grief for more me. More
0: trauma, more trauma. <laughs>
1: more trauma. <laughs> um, so I would say it was about a period of five or six weeks, uh, sorry, five or six years, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that all the, the, what I call my, my difficult run.
0: <laughs> wow. David, can you tell us what is the difference between pain and suffering?
1: It's an interesting distinction. I didn't realize it until I'd experienced intense suffering and then, you know, grew out of my suffering. So if we use grief, for example, when we lose a loved one, we experience grief. And we experience grief as a very normal human natural reaction because if we're not experiencing grief, it means we're not connected with anyone. We're not loving anyone. So that's pain, that's emotional pain. We get physical pain if we step on something sharp and the sharp pain tells us we've stepped on something and we need to fix it. So a pain has got this uh, survival aspect to it where it's there to tell us something's wrong and we need to attend to it. So if it's emotional pain or physical pain, we respond to that pain and we do the right things to get well. Suffering is when we layer that pain with other aspects, which makes the pain worse or, or draws it out much longer. And we can create suffering even when there's no pain. So for example, a perfectionist, somebody who's incredibly perfectionist, will do a great job, but they'll keep seeing little mistakes in it that no one else can see. And they're creating suffering for themselves. They've actually done a great job. Everyone's happy, but they're not happy. Uh, it, uh, when we lose a loved one, for example, you know, one of the stories in, in my book is about Jane who loses Georgia, Georgia's 18, when she experiences abdominal pain. And then about a year later, she's dead from ovarian mm-hmm. cancer. You now, Jane experienced pain, emotional pain and suffering but I can say now that Jane has moved out of the suffering because she was suffering because she wanted Georgia back. She didn't want to lose her. And so she would keep wanting to have Georgia back. She would keep imagining this life with Georgia still here as any parent would do. But eventually she accepted that Georgia is gone. But now her relationship with Georgia is a different one. It's still a very alive relationship. She still talks to Georgia. She still hears Georgia's voice. But it's an evolving relationship. But it it acknowledges that Georgia physically is no longer here. And so the suffering has eased for her because she accepts the reality as it is. But the pain, the grief of losing Georgia will still be there. Will still be there. And it will probably be there for the rest of her life.
0: Well, that brings me to another question that I was going to ask you further down. But this is really so that's why acceptance is the first step to moving on after after suffering. And I understand that because if you can't accept um, what is going on in your life and you keep fighting it, like your example with the perfectionist who will not accept that it's okay to have a mistake or whatever, you're going to keep suffering. Mm. Right. Have I got that right?
1: Yes. And, and and acceptance doesn't happen, you know, I wake up one morning and suddenly I accept everything the way it is. It tends to have a long tail. So I, I have this expression you know, bashing your head against the wall. I remember after our financial crisis, I would sometimes have dreams about us going on lovely holidays and doing lovely things. And then I'd wake in the morning and think, Oh, no, we've got no money. <laughs> And that would happen morning after morning. And that's, that's, you know, the human psyche is so complex that part of it can believe something and another part can believe something else. So part of me was accepting, okay, we don't have any money but another part was still imagining that we did. And that was quite a long tail before I, you know, fully accepted that we didn't have any money. We'd lost our life savings. And therefore, what did that mean? So when you can tell somebody's achieved acceptance is that they start to behave in a way that's consistent with them, recognizing that the situation has changed, that that's how it is now.
0: Yeah, I, I can understand that. So how does suffering open a person up to become a new version? Is that what you're saying? They accept it and now they're opening up to become a new version of him or herself? And then there's the quality of resilience within a person that I'm sure is an ingredient that leads to what you call post-traumatic growth.
1: I think there's, uh, you know, there's, I like to say there's good news and there's bad news. And the bad news is that there's suffering. It seems to be part of human existence, part of human life. But the good news is when we experience suffering, particularly intense type of suffering that we're talking about, it forces us to do something different that we've ever done before. It, it forces us to open up in ways that we wouldn't have opened up before. So we might reach out to people that we wouldn't have contemplated before. And I know you've told me some oh, of your personal story, yes. Irene, and you certainly reached out to people you wouldn't have imagined reaching out to before. Absolutely. And everybody I've come across who's been through some post traumatic growth story, they've reached out to people that they wouldn't have reached out before. It could be individuals, it could be professionals, non professionals, could be self help groups or a new area of interest. You know, like I've got a friend who was a um, very high flying uh, doctor, doctor of medicine in the university, taught uh, medical students. Had absolutely no interest in meditation or mindfulness, but now she's she had some some things happen to her which completely opened her up to this idea of alternative healing, which you know, and she's thoroughly embraced meditation and mindfulness, and is so grateful for discovering that area. So we we reach out to new people, we reach out to try new things, and ultimately it creates new insights for us. And those insights I like to call wisdom. And then that wisdom guides us in new ways. And that's the growth.
0: That's so true. Why, David, do some people stay stuck in their suffering suffering while others flourish? <coughs> Excuse me.
1: I think there's a, a range of reasons why <laughs> some people stay stuck in their suffering. And, and the first reason is, what I've just said is that people, for all sorts of reasons, don't open up to other people. Particularly, I, I th- I, the t- we're talking about intense suffering here, not just everyday type of suffering. With intense suffering, we can't do it on our own. We can't get through it on our own. So we really do need to reach out to other people. And for whatever reason, these people don't do that. And tend to find that with people that are incredibly self-reliant. You know, it requires it requires some sense of vulnerability to reveal myself to others. Right. And I, I can think of some people who just will not reach out to others. They won't even join a self-help group. And I can't fully explain why that is. There's You know, I know some... people like
0: that too, David. And it really is yes. disturbing. Because I say it's right out there shining it's it's right out there shining for you to grab it and you <laughs> won't do it. Do you think yes. it has something to do with they don't want to change?
1: Uh, I think it can be a personality characteristic. So we're born, you know, we are born with personality dispositions. You know, scientists will say it's roughly about 50% our personality style, whether we're an extrovert or an introvert, or we're a curious person, or we're not a curious person. Uh, we're born with that. And then about 50% is developed over time as we grow and, you know, with life events. So some personality characteristics, just are this very self-reliant type of person think I've got to get through it myself and I don't want to reveal my vulnerabilities to other. So, and, and another aspect of this is people who see the problems as being out there, outside them, rather than inside, like maybe I need to change. You know, people who think the world needs to change. The world is messed up, it's not me and 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 that that type of attitude is going to keep you stuck there's a lovely example uh in my book uh with rob gordon who's a disaster psychologist who goes to help people after natural disasters and he gives an example of two people both both a a man and a woman both uh, practicing christians and one the, the guy has had actually the more serious uh, gunshot wound. And I wow. don't know what the details of that was. Um, and and he gets this wound and he survives. And he says, this is a message for, from God for me to do something meaningful for my life. I've survived. It's God's way of saying, I need to do something mean meaningful. And he becomes transformed and goes off and does new things. Whereas the woman who's actually what you might think of as the more devout practicing Christian who says, I went to, ch- I go to church every Sunday. I do this and I do that to show my commitment. Right. Why, why would God do that to me? Why would he inflict this harm on me? And she can't get around this idea that, um, you know, the harm that she's experienced is, is some something male- malevolent on, on God's purpose. So she remains stuck because of this fixed belief so we can develop fixed beliefs that keep us trapped in suffering as well and the only final thing i'll say is that our childhood uh, styles of attachment. so where we've had secure attachments with our parents or our primary caregivers we're more likely to feel comfortable with reaching out with people and to be curious and to explore new things if we've had secure attachments growing up when we've had difficult attachments, or what psychologists call insecure attachments, where we find it more difficult to be trusting of others and also to uh, allow for compassion for ourselves. So there are two characteristics that can come out of our childhood which don't help us um, when we're going through intense suffering. But on the other hand there are also things that we can work through as adults.
0: That's a question I wanted to also ask you that had to do with children. If the seas of suffering are sown in a child's early environment how do they have who have suffered how do they acquire post-traumatic growth?
1: It's a it's an interesting question and it can actually go both ways. So if you go to a place where children are not as well, 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 where they're exposed to, you know, potential trauma on a daily basis, like a refugee camp, you know, where people are just barely surviving and where, you know, times are really tough. And, um, you know, one of the stories in the new book is a refugee story and that, that, early trauma can actually harden you up and actually make you more resilient for later on. And so when some major intense crisis comes later on, that child who has been able to cope with that difficult situation, as long as they have still felt um, some love and support will actually do better when they come through a, another major life event, because they've all already developed some resilience they know they can get through tough things. They just sort of roll with it a bit more.
0: But does so, it but, but does it affect them? How does a child who hasn't received a love who who are living, you know, and I'm thinking of some examples in our real world today who are who are living without that that love or that necessary attachment? Is there any hope for a child like that?
1: I think it's harder for a child like that. And that's where, you know, as a community and as a society, we want to look out for um, our children's welfare from from the very earliest days. You know, like I, I said, I, I was working a lot for the children's court clinic where I was asked to assess families and children and relatives where the children had been removed from the parents because of the parents neglect or abuse or it's just, weren't coping, you know, maybe they had a drug addiction and the court was trying to decide what's the best for the children. Will the parents get well again, or do we need to look to, um, you know, foster them out and with children like that, you know, having, having early role models where there is somebody who's supportive and stable in their life makes a huge difference. It doesn't have to, to be the parents, but, they, they are starting behind the eight ball um, yes. later in life if they don't have some, somebody who's stable and supportive in their life. And as I said, it doesn't have to be the parents.
0: Let me ask you, if a child has a very traumatized early years without that love, but then later on you know someone does come into their lives even when they're maybe nine or ten or going into their teen years is there hope for that child can they be can they be yes brought back in a way
1: there's always hope I, i always think there's hope irene um but it's just more difficult as you say you know they do need to find somebody and you know there's a few stories in my new book where somebody important comes along and it seems to be the right person at the right time and you know the person makes a connection with them and then things start to happen uh, but i always think there's hope
0: okay that's good to know david does time truly heal people always say that you always hear time heals what What can help a person get through this initial survival period aside from acceptance after this event? And for people who are going through trauma and there are many listening now who are, what are some of the positive ways a person can cope with suffering?
1: Uh, The, the, the cliche time heals is partly correct. So, what happens in time is we start to reflect on our experiences and develop, you know, insights and then new behaviors. So if we think about the stages of post-traumatic growth, the event or series of events happens, there's initial initially shock and disbelief. And we talked about acceptance, so that that acceptance period can take a while and we could be talking months, for that to happen, or in some cases, even years. And then after that, we get we get a lot of intrusive rumination. So psychologists talk about different types of rumination, which is just, you know, types of thinking, memories. So intrusive rumination is that, you know, keep like with Jane and Georgia, keep thinking about Georgia and the times they had together and wanting her back. And these intrusive rumination is automatic. It's like somebody else is putting those thoughts into us. We've got no control over it. But then what starts to happen uh, is, is this self-reflection. So I'm reflecting on you know my state of mind, my physical well-being, and the events that have happened and the way my life is now. And I'm starting to make some sense of it. And often in this period, people need to keep telling their story. They need to tell other people who are interested in their story. And in telling their story, they're gradually achieving acceptance, but they're also getting new perspectives on their story. They're making sense of it. And then in time, we start to have more deliberate rumination, which is you know, where we've achieved acceptance or acceptance to a point where we say, okay, this seems to be how it is now. What does that mean? What am I going to do now? And the deliberate rumination is about making new plans, you know, moving forward. Uh, You know, the idea of one door closes, another door opens. So opening to new possibilities and maybe starting to look back over what I've achieved so far and thinking, oh, I'm actually getting through this. I'm making some progress. Maybe, you know, I'm going to achieve something, uh, joy and contentment again. So we start making plans. And this is deliberate rumination. And during all these periods of time, we need we need what I like to call an expert companion or expert companions. Somebody that walks alongside us. And, and these could be people, new people that we found, you know, when we've opened up to others, mm-hmm. or it could be somebody existing in our life. What often happens is that the people we thought we could rely on turn out not to be the people we can rely on because they can't handle our distress or our suffering. They don't know what to do with it. But we need to find other people that are comfortable with that or that we resonate with. So if in this period of time, we've also got an expert companion or companions, then that will make a huge difference. So it's not the physical amount of time that makes the difference. It's what happens in that period of time and that period of time it takes to move from, you know, the event or the series of events through to acceptance, through intrusive rumination, self-reflection, on to deliberate rumination, and then making new plans. That period of time we can't determine. we Sorry, we can't predetermine how long that's going to be.
0: So, so it could be quite a it could be quite a span of time for people. I mean, it's not like yes. a. Uh, 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 everybody in five years is over it and da da da. It, it changes, right?
1: Yes. So I had, you know, my five or six years of my bad run. And I would say it took about another five years before I thought, I've, I've worked this out now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is great. This is, it's wonderful, David. Thank you. Um, how is, we're sort of touching on it. How is self compassion an antidote to suffering? I mean, in a way it's part of opening up to new ways of being. And, and what else um, would you say about that?
1: I'll just, uh, I think this is really worth exploring. So I'll just talk about a bit about the, the makeup of the, of the human brain. And when we think about the evolution of the human brain, we've got three emotional drive systems and, you know, the, the, the obvious one is 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 the threat system, the one that keeps us alive. So evolution has obviously been successful in the sense that we're still surviving, and we've uh, the threat system is there to, you know, monitor if there's anything in our environment that might harm us, and we automatically react to that. So if we see what we think might be a snake on the ground, you know, we jump or we do whatever without even thinking about it. But then our higher order brain kicks in and says oh no it's just a stick we can calm down so that's the fight flight response sometimes the freeze response the other drive emotional system is the one that's about getting ahead you know finding food finding shelter, finding sex uh achievement you know our society really encourages achievement and we get rewarded internally for achievement you know we get dopamine hits which gives us a high you know that's why people know high-fiving after they've scored a goal or whatever it is that they're trying to achieve it's a it's the real you know it's a real high and so um that that system those two systems tend to get uh over over activated when when we're going through a crisis you know the threat system and how do i get through yeah because you're
0: you're it's a survival thing you're you're frightened
1: yeah yeah and you know we're recording this at the time of the pandemic and lots of people those systems the threat system and the drive system are being activated but the third system which evolved later in mammals and is most highly developed in humans is is the affiliative soothing system it evolved from the rest and digest system where our body is actually uh, not having to do anything it's just resting and restoring and in humans, that's evolved into the affiliative system where we make connections with others, we develop social connections. And this is the safety system. So this only works when we're feeling safe. It, it's about safeness, the feeling of safeness. And that's why, you know, when a child is being soothed by their mother or their father after they've fallen over and, or something like that, the child is soothed, the parent will naturally soothe them without thinking about why they're doing it, and the child will feel soothed, and that's making the child feel safe. So what's happened in humans especially, because we've got the most highly evolved brains, is that when we apply compassion to ourselves, it's very, very soothing. It really activates this soothing affiliative system. And we can think of self-compassion very simply as being what would I do for a loved one or somebody I care about or a good friend if they were in trouble? How would I soothe them? And self compassion is simply having that same attitude to oneself. And there's ways in which we can practice compassion and we can actively create a, a feeling of compassion for ourselves. And, you know, in my own experience, that was through do, doing loving kindness meditation when I was going through my difficulties. And what seems to be happening when we apply compassion to ourselves, and it's a very different brain network from empathy, for example, um, is that it's creating that sense of safeness. And that sense of safeness just does lovely things for us. It calms the physiological system. It calms that threat system. You know, those three drive systems I've talking about, you tend to Mm -hmm. get one, Dominating at any time, Um, obviously the threat system gets dominates more easily because it's Mm. responding to an emergency, and then the drive system might be the next. But the soothing system tends to get left behind uh, when we're in crisis. So that's why we need to actively do things that soothe. And I think going to a self help group or, or being with others that have been through some experience like our own, or they can resonate to you know, on a similar level. And I found it really valuable to talk to some people uh, who hadn't necessarily been through the same experience as me, like PTSD or Mm -hmm. or stroke, but they understood what suffering felt like because they'd been through some major life upheavals themselves and come out of it.
0: Well, what you're saying is, as I say to people, which I say when you're going through trauma or you're coming out of a crisis Who are you putting on your wagon train to surround yourself with? What are you doing to be loving Mm -hmm. to yourself? Because when I was going through my own experiences with the car accident and all that I went through and the grief and all that, I had certain people who performed different functions for me. I didn't realize exactly what I was doing at the time, but there was the therapist. There was the spiritual healer. There was my friend who was there to listen to me vent and help me. And there were these different people. they became my network and like you said my old network kind of fell fell away and this became my Mm. new survival team and uh so it's very similar to what what you're saying i I always say to people who are you putting on your wagon train put yourself in the middle of that thing and you know feel safe who are you helping yourself feel safe david what is the hero's journey that leads to post-traumatic growth when it comes to suffering
1: Irene, when I was writing up the stories uh, for the new book, I spent a year writing them up and I'd actually, you know, done all the interviews and, and, and transcripts and, and, you know, I was aware of all the research and spoken to the experts. So I had a whole year where I could just sit with these stories and I was writing one after the other, you know, for one, each chapter. And I knew already that there was something special about people when they go through these life upheavals not only survive them, but come out as a changed person in ways that they really like. I thought there's there's gotta be some name or some description for this. And I I was vaguely aware of Joseph Campbell's uh, mythology about the hero's journey and how it often featured it in films and stories and so on. And I thought, you know, there's something really heroic about the way people get through these life crises. And people would say to me, oh, you're so inspiring, or you're so inspirational. And I I couldn't get it at first because I thought, well, I was just putting one foot in front of the other. I was just (laughs) trying to do what I thought was the best. I was just trying to survive. I wasn't trying to inspire anyone. And And I thought, when I was writing this, I was feeling inspired by their stories, and I really got it. I thought, well, when we see somebody else go through some major life trauma and get through it and survive and grow, it is inspiring. So I, I studied Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and watched these interviews with him. and I thought, wow, the, the pattern that people go through is very similar to his hero's journey. So somebody is just going along in their normal everyday life. and then there's is a call to adventure. and the call to adventure or, or you know call to a quest in Joseph Campbell's mythology is you know some event happens or a messenger comes. Uh, You know, you can think of Gandalf coming up to, you know, in in the Lord of the Rings and saying, look, there's this bad thing happening. We need somebody to go and rescue the world. Um, And so this event happens or a messenger comes, and then this person initially can't believe it. They don't want to leave the normal world. So there's a refusal of the call. But eventually they have to step over the threshold. Which is the acceptance we've talked about acceptance. Mm-hmm. So stepping over the threshold. It's really
0: acceptance. a choice, also.
1: It's a choice. It's a yeah. choice. It sure is. And we usually need somebody to help us step over the thresholds. This is where our first mentor or expert mm-hmm. companion comes in. And then we enter this new world or the or the or the changed world. And in that world, and I so relate to this because sometimes people withdraw they withdraw from their normal activities or even their normal community. There's a period of what can feel like and can seem to others a period of withdrawal. And this is often where we're cultivating new relationships like you've talked about, finding those new people to mm-hmm. put on the wagon. And so we, we find allies. So allies are people that are trying to do something similar to ourselves. So we run alongside them. And then we go through various trials. So you know there's a story in my book about morris gleason who was blinded at age 12 at a time when there were very few services for the vision impaired or blind he's been permanently blind ever since and he's now in his 60s but he he went to a school for the vision impaired and he was told that he was dumb that he shouldn't you know he shouldn't continue his education and most people with uh, you know vision impairment we're told that they're not to expect very much in life they would be basket weavers piano tuners or something like that uh, so he was put into a factory but he never thought he thought I, I'm not sure that I'm dumb you know he wanted to test himself so he went to night school just to learn English and the teacher said no you've got some ability so he then decided oh and she said maybe you could even do a a pre-university course and he was interested in welfare or social work so he tested himself so each of these stages was a test and he eventually he concluded that he wasn't dumb but he had to go through a test but how brave of him himself. how
0: brave of him not to choose that and not to accept yes other people's um uh judgment of him you know uh, that's amazing so let me ask you this what is the role of awareness? to our personal narratives, and how does, and this question I know applies to both you and me, how does deepening spirituality, which takes a person beyond the self to the bigger picture, make an important difference in the face of raw pain and crisis? That's
1: a big question, Irene. A
0: big one. <laughs> well, you've you're you're, you, you uh, got a lot of knowledge and wisdom, David, so I figured you could handle it. <laughs>
1: thank you. Okay. I, th- I, th- I think there's two prongs to that. One is about the awareness and one is about the spiritual growth. And uh, I think what happens when we've been through a major life crisis, which upends our world, what's happening is that we've developed uh, a life story. And I like to talk about the story itself, the story itself being uh, the sense of self, like this idea of how ha- the person I, I believe I am. And that's, developed over time you know from our childhood from our society where we grow in you know our religious influences everything so we develop this story and the human brain has this ability to time travel where we can go back into the past we can drag up memories and say oh I, you know, I'm a person that likes to eat lasagna because of this thing that happened in the past.
0: The grandma you gave know, me lasagna la- when I was five years old. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Now we, we, don't, we don't think of other animals doing that. And then, and then I can project that into the future. And, 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 and I, I have a, a story already in my head about how my f- future life story is going to happen. So we have this awareness. Now, what happens is when the life event happens is it disrupts that life story. So the life story and the story itself uh, becomes no longer feasible like like we thought it was. And so what it does, it creates awareness about this life story that we've created without even realizing it. And we have to create a new life story. And mindfulness, which I'm very big on because it helped me enormously um, is, is a way of creating uh, awareness of everything about us, whether it's our thoughts, it's our feelings, it's our physical sensations and what we make of them. And mindfulness is simply being aware of what's happening right now uh, with me. And that provides the data that we use to work on. You know, I say it's like the internal weather. If you're a farmer and you're not taking a a notice of the weather, you just plant your crops because you feel like planting crops on a Monday, um, you're gonna have a lot of hit and misses, probably more misses. (laughs) So so a farmer understands that you've gotta take note of the weather. And so we do the same with our internal weather through awareness of what's going on. And when, when we develop that awareness, that's when we can start to create a new life story and then I think you asked about spiritual growth. Yeah, yeah. And
0: for,
1: and for me, I, I can't explain why this is, except that I was drawn to uh, Buddhism and Buddhist concepts. I think because I liked meditation, I discovered meditation, and there's some good, great brain science about why meditation um, is very healing and changes the brain in certain ways. And that's initially why I did it. But I started to understand that in Buddhism, there's this idea that, um, that you know, we have very little control over our life, that, that, that the, the, um, the understandings we have about life are just one way of perceiving things. So my simplest, my simple definition of spirituality is an understanding that goes beyond the everyday. It's just a developing an understanding that's another level of understanding beyond the everyday. And I certainly developed that. You know I had some very insightful experiences on a meditation retreat and at other times where I could see that our typical way of looking at life isn't the only way of looking at it. It's not that our typical way of looking at it is wrong. It's just one level of perception. And for me, developing this extra spirituality gave me a lot of comfort. And it also gave me a moral compass because I decided that, um, you know, leading a value-driven life was was a a means for, for contentment. And I looked at the Buddhist Eightfold Path, which talks about right speech, right action, you know, not harming people and I thought, well, there's there's a template for how to live a good life, so I it would follow that template. So here was here was a way of thinking about life that which went beyond the everyday.
0: Um, would you say it would be like a
1: template for living,
0: the higher picture? Would you say it, it enables people to see things from a higher perspective and maybe not be as deeply in the weeds from a personal standpoint? It, it, it's able to kind of lift you out of um the swamps so to speak you're a little bit gliding more above it and seeing it from a yes. different perspective at least that's what happens yes, for it's me. like
1: you've been yeah, excuse me yes it's like you've been given a. it's like you've been given a spiritual drone
0: yeah you know the drone yeah.
1: goes up and <laughs> it's 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 not it's not that the landscape has changed but you can see it. In a different perspective. And
0: right.
1: you know, astronauts, astronauts, um, you know, talk about seeing the earth from a distance, seeing this little blue dot. And they can never, they can never see the earth in the same way they did before they left the earth because they now see how fragile, how we're all in it together, and human beings really aren't that different from one another. And you know, my simple formula is what i've noticed with people that experience post-traumatic growth and, and develop the spiritual aspect is there's less emphasis on the i they reduce the sense of i you know what i need all the time just thinking about what i need and they increase the sense of we so we could be family it could be your community right. it could be your spiritual group or it could be you know like for me i think of one of my we's is other stroke survivors um, or, or you know, um, it could be your, your country. So it's a greater sense of we. And when we have that greater sense of we, it seems to correlate with well-being.
0: And And another question as we start to uh, wind this up, which is an amazing interview, is um, how does giving life meaning? make a difference for those of us who are suffering. So you have so many people on the planet right now, David, and they are suffering. It would, one of the things to help them be for them to look around their world and find out what they can do, maybe helping other people or doing other things that can, that's what happened to me actually after my, after the accident and all that happened to me, I became a founding board member of an organization that helped children with grief. And that gave my life meaning. It gave me, and it also took my focus away from myself. So I'm wondering if that is a prescription for people who are suffering to find something that gives their lives meaning.
1: Yes. And I think finding meaning, Irene, isn't something we work out today. And then that's how it is forevermore. You know, finding meaning is an evolving process. Absolutely. Uh, so what is really meaningful for me today may evolve in some way there's a lovely story in the book with steve garlic steve garlic was the the economist who had a car accident um, and he he lost lost his his...
0: family or his son was very badly hurt yes he, he
1: lost his wife and youngest son and the second son you know had a severe brain injury and so initially initially uh his purpose in life what gave him meaning was helping his son who survived with the head injury, um, just to, you know, to rehabilitate at a time when there was very little rehabilitation services for for children like that. But interestingly, after he started getting his son on the road to recovery, he, one thing that happened for him was in, he, he, he was stuck in his suffering other than helping his son. Was that one of his work colleagues said, Oh, look, I'm going to this group. It was actually put on by the Catholic Church. It's and it was it was about new beginnings. And it's the people going through divorce or had a life-threatening illness or, you know, something that disrupted their life story. And he thought, Oh, that sounds like touchy-feely stuff. But anyway, his friend, his work colleague convinced him to go. And he went along and he started to hear everybody's stories. And he said, I I thought I was the only one in the world suffering, but then I heard everybody else's stories. And he said, hearing their stories, I realized that I could offer them solace. I could help them in whatever ways I could help. And that relieved him of some of his suffering. So by helping others and resonating with their suffering, even when we're in a group like that, just being a listener to somebody else telling their story is helping them. Um, that was the start of him releasing his suffering. And then he, uh, you know, came, uh, another woman came into his life and one thing led to another and they started rescuing wild animal, you know, wildlife that had been hit on the road or been, um, you know, we have a lot of kangaroos here, as you know, and, and they can jump into the fences. I, by the way, I have to tell
0: you, I love that chapter about how you're describing that chapter about how those kangaroos were roaming around in that house and <laughs> all the different things going on there.
1: <laughs> so he, he, he and his wife uh, rescue wild animals that have been injured. And he says, these animals give me <clears throat> uh, much more than, than, than I give them. And he knew what it was like to suffer. And his family didn't rally around him as much as he would have liked after his accident. And he said, I wanna do for these animals what didn't happen for me. So he's found tremendous meaning in his life. And honestly, he gets some huge joy out of the work that he does, even though it's physically and financially very demanding. And when we had our wildfire season here, recently in our last summer you may have heard we Mm -hmm. had the the biggest fires we've ever had and we a lot of native animals were burned and uh steve and his wife rosemary were at the forefront of rescuing a lot of those animals
0: wow that's amazing put on your psychologist hat david and speak to us about the importance of healing in a person's life And then what role the awareness of the bigger picture plays when it comes to healing one's life? Because we have two levels, right? Mm
1: -hmm. I know you can
0: speak to both.
1: I I think we need to just recognize that life inherently uh, involves suffering and it involves mishaps, things that we don't foresee are going to happen. So in other words, and, you know, we, we know this for sure with our physical well-being, everybody who's been alive for only, only a short time knows that we, we've got, you know, we get physical injuries, we get physical aches and pains, we get illnesses. Mm-hmm. And we just take it as natural that we go and see the doctor or we see a physical healer for that or we take medicines for that. And it's the same with, with, with our mental well-being is that we, you know, life dishes out events that we didn't foresee. Uh, even with, with time, over time, with aging, various things will happen. But so healing is just something that I think we want to see as a normal part of life, self-healing or seeking out other healers.
0: We'd like to see I've that.
1: For, yeah. I've forgotten the rest of your question, Irene.
0: <laughs> that's all right. But it's something we would like to see that people see it as something that's a normal part of life. But the bigger picture, the spiritual picture or the bigger picture, does that um does that help with the knowing the importance of healing? I mean, I I I think of that as in, in addition to heal having a passion for healing my issues, which has is made my life so much better but also because i've become very spiritual and i know there's a bigger picture i am more conscious about how i treat myself i'm more conscious about how i treat others i'm more i'm more conscious about what i'm doing because i know it will have ramifications one day i will be on the other side one day i will experience some of what i went through what did i want to do with this world so in this world with what i was given would you agree yes. with that Do you have something to add to that
1: yes yes i love what you've just said so I, I completely agree with that and in my own case it's been what can i make of my suffering how can i use my suffering that i've experienced as a, as a means to helping others you know uh, that that is a very clear one for me and when i wrote my last book how i rescued my brain it became really meaningful for me to think, okay, I've been through this awful experience. It was certainly a terrible experience. I've come out of it and I found out ways to come out of it that perhaps not everybody would know about, perhaps because of my professional training and experience at that time and my understanding about how the brain works. So why not write a book about that that would help others? And it's certainly proved to be extremely helpful i still get you know great messages from people about that so i know that that book is has got a life of its own it's doing its own thing and it's still resonating with people around the world and this this next book uh i just thought the same thing it's not so much about me but i thought people need to hear other people's stories that you can get through life difficulties survive them and even turn out to be a better person we can't control what life dishes out to us but we can control what we make of that and uh that's that's a higher purpose for me and i think uh this sense of interconnectedness we're all interconnected yes um you know even if we look at on a physics level we're we're just we're just electromagnetic fields so we we bump up against one another's electromagnetic fields, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and that's all vibration. Right. So life life is really vibration at a physical level. It's vibration, and so we're all interconnected at that very subatomic level, and we're interconnected as a species, and we're interconnected with our world. You know, like if our world is not healthy, we can't be healthy. So the higher purpose, really. Is what is what is the greater good for me and for everyone.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you. How do I list they all want to read your book now, which I can't recommend highly enough, and they all want to read your other books, David. So let everyone know how to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of your books? Spell it out. Let us let us all know.
1: Uh if they want to want to contact me or at least find out more about me, the best uh, one stop call would be the website, which is David Rowland, my name, and Roland is R O L A N D dot com dot A U, David dot A U. Um, How I Rescued My Brain um, and The Power of Suffering are all available as audio books and e books internationally, so you can get that through any of your favorite um, online bookstores. The Power of Suffering is recently published in the uk i don't think believe it's available as a paper book in the us directly but you could get it through amazon uk or the book depository one of those
0: okay and david roland with all you've been through what is your tip on finding joy in life
1: <laughs> dance Dance.
0: Dance. Oh, I love that. <laughs> literally dance uh, and my, dance through life.
1: <laughs> well, I I literally dance. I do a lot of salsa oh, and Latin wonderful. American dancing. And that came out of me wanting to heal my brain. I learned that dance was a way of of, of of improving brain health. But what I hadn't anticipated was that the social connection and the pure joy of moving my body to music. I hadn't anticipated that, and now I dance for the joy and the social connection.
0: Oh, that is wonderful! And if wonderful. it helps
1: my brain, more good.
0: Yeah, all the better. I think. And that's so there's beautiful. a sh-
1: there's a there's a short film on my website about my trip to Cuba last year when I went there to go dancing.
0: So can we get on your website and all of us can see you dancing? Is there actually, you can, all right, everybody, so you can check that out, it sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to end this powerful, wonderful interview with a brilliant quote from David's book, The Power of Suffering. We open up to new possibilities, new people, and new insights when our personhood is assailed by suffering. There is a release before there is a gain. This is the positive work of suffering to knock down the parapets of our assumptions about how life is. David, I could not agree more. As a person who has also experienced rebirth after trauma, I know that the darkest night can indeed lead to the most profound dawn. The insights to be found in the power of suffering can be life changing. I highly recommend it, and I thank you, David, for a very special interview. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on ireneweinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us, we know you do, on social at at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now.